When I saw Jack for our next session, he was quite excited. I told him that we were going to discuss communication skills and conflict resolution in the light of the characters in Brain Politics. He laughed. I've been to many courses on communication skills and conflict resolution, he said. Well, what I got for you is quite different and I'm sure you will find it enjoyable and helpful. When you look at it in the terms of the brain's different characters, you come up with something way better, I said. Do I detect some narcissism in that statement, Doc? Jack teased. I'll try and be humble about it, but it really is quite good. I laughed. I am Dr. Rajiv Parinja. Welcome back to Brain Politics. Today, we'll take some time to go with Jack into two of his dreams that give us insights into the evolutionary origins of many things that we do as humans. Jack said, I want to talk about something very different today. Do you know how we discuss the reward system and pretty much everything that we want to do is driven by the reward system? You told me some of the things that we find rewarding, but there isn't really a complete list of the things that humans find rewarding, is there? He asked. That's right, I said. Different people find such different things rewarding, depending on the context, the culture, and the time in which they live, that there hasn't really been a comprehensive list of all the things that people want. There are some people who have tried to classify the things we want, a popular example that you might have heard of is Abraham Maslow, who came up with the hierarchy of needs. I had some dreams, said Jack. I got such good insights from those dreams that you might want to publish them in scientific journals. I'm sure the most reputable scientific journals are looking exactly to publish what you saw in your dreams, I said sarcastically. Jack ignored my sarcasm and started his story. In my dream, I went to a theme park in Florida where they have the DeLorean. Do you mean the one from the Back to the Future, which was a time machine, I asked. Exactly that one, he replied. And then he continued his story. So I go to the theme park, get in the DeLorean, and fly off, he said. So it was a flying DeLorean, like in the second movie, I asked. Do you mean you stole it? I don't condone stealing, I said. It's not illegal to steal in your dreams, laughed Jack. I guess I should concede that point, I replied. Where did you fly to in the DeLorean, I asked him. Well, he replied, first I flew to a nearby marsh and picked up a small alligator to take as a pet. Why did you choose an alligator as a pet? I asked him. You can't ask me that question, he replied. I can't? Why not? I said to him. You are my psychiatrist. You are supposed to give me an interpretation of my dreams and not ask me to interpret them for you, he replied. I am sorry you did not get Freud for your psychiatrist, I laughed. But can I have one more question? I asked. Why did you choose a small alligator? Well, he replied, a large one would not fit in the car. I see, I said. Well, that makes perfect sense. 
enough with the sarcasm, Jack replied. Then he started his story. I decided I wanted to use the time machine to go to the year 2035. That was the year in which I had hoped to retire. I would be 65 in that year. I wanted to see what my retired life looked like. I punched in the number 2035 on the display and started off. But there was a problem. I didn't know I had to put in AD after the year. The car defaulted to 2035 BC. I flew back in time to 2035 BC. I ended up 4,000 years ago and crashed the car into some trees. And there I was, stuck with a broken down time machine, with no access to technology and no way to get back. I had to figure out how I was going to survive in that environment. But first, I had to take care of my small pet alligator. Now that was the easy part. I found a swamp and released him. You see, the life of an alligator has not really changed in the last 4,000 years. And an alligator will have no difficulty in surviving in a marsh from 4,000 years ago. Our lives are vastly different. I realized I did not have the tools or the skills to make it on my own in this prehistoric time. I knew that I would need other humans if I was going to survive. This of course was tricky because the other humans might see me as somebody very different and very dangerous. They might even attack me or kill me. I went for a few days trying to keep myself fed and hydrated and then a group of humans spotted me. They surrounded me and were trying to figure out what to make of me. They must have decided that I was harmless and they were quite impressed with my clothes and my teeth, Jack said. Why were they so impressed with your teeth? I asked him. You see, brushing your teeth was not a thing at that time and their teeth looked rather stained compared to mine. They must have thought I was some divine or special creature with white teeth. They took me with them and gave me some food and water. I stayed with them and started to work with them on the things that they were doing. I was able to learn the language they spoke. I initially tried my hand at hunting, but I was not very good at throwing spears, which was the main way they hunted. I was, however, quite good at fixing broken spears and making new spears. They liked what I did and were willing to continue feeding me. Have you heard of Robin Dunbar? Jack asked me. I certainly have, I replied. He is a British anthropologist from Oxford University who came up with what is now called the Dunbar number. This is the number of people that used to live together in groups in the prehistoric era. This is also the number of people we can socially track. This number is about 150. Yes, said Jack. I was living in a group of 150 people. There were also other similar-sized groups that lived in the area. I found myself wanting and liking certain things. I really wanted to be skilled and to be seen to be valuable to my group. 
I liked it when they treated me with respect and seemed to value my skills. I realized that this was quite important for my survival. I liked it when I did better than other people within my group, but I also liked it when my group seemed to be better and stronger than the other groups in the area. This was a kind of trade-off, and though I did not like the people in my group doing better than me, I appreciated it when their contribution made us a stronger group and enabled us to defeat other groups if there was a competition or a fight. I eventually managed to become the best person in that group when it came to making new spears. People recognized that and respected me for it. My status within the group rose and I really liked that. I made good friends with some of the people. I would use every opportunity I got to do something for them in the hope that they would return this favor and take care of me if I was ever sick or unable to do the things that I needed to do. People would get injured and other people in the group would help them when they were recovering from their injury. The sense that there were people who would bring some food on a day that an injured person was not able to hunt is very reassuring. I wanted other people to care about me because I knew that my survival depended on it. When I was doing really well, I would focus on demonstrating and drawing attention to my superior skills and capability. But when I was not doing well, my focus would shift towards signaling the need to get help and focusing on those people who could help me. I seemed to spend quite a bit of time on these two different things. First, I was thinking about how my performance and capability was compared to other people. And second, I was thinking about how much other people around me would help me when I needed them. I think this dream demonstrates a lot of things that humans find rewarding, Jack said. You see, it is important for us to be accepted and to belong because we don't do very well on our own. We are a very social species that only thrives when we work together with other people. Though I came there as an outsider, even for somebody born within the group at that time, their survival would depend on how well they are accepted and how they belong to the group that they're in. Being accepted and having a sense of belonging is rewarding for us. Performing well compared to others, getting respect for our competence and capability, rising in status, these are all rewarding. It is also rewarding when our group seems to do better than other groups. We focus on who the people are that can help us and how they can help us when things are not working well for us. It is rewarding and reassuring to know that there are people who care about us. I do believe these are the broad categories that are rewarding for humans. That is brilliant, I told him. I think you have pretty accurately summarized the things that we find rewarding. We want to be accepted. We want to belong. We want to be competent and better compared to others. We want to have status and get respect that comes with it. We also want to belong to groups that are better than other groups around us. We also want other people to help us in times of need, but our attention to that varies depending on how well we are doing. You can see some of this in play when we are supporting a sports team. 
People get very excited when their team wins over other competing teams. They find it rewarding and this tendency is the basis for the popularity of the sports industry. I have one more dream to tell you about, Jack said. Just a moment, I said. I still can't figure out how you got out of your predicament. How did you get back from being stuck in a place over 4,000 years ago with a broken down DeLorean? I didn't have to, said Jack. I just woke up from the dream, Jack replied. How convenient, I said. Let's hear your second dream. This is even more bizarre than the first one, Jack said. I am all ears, I said. Give me a break, Doc, Jack laughed. This is good stuff. I don't disagree, I said. But the communication skills and conflict resolution is important too, and it is very good, I said. I will work on it in the next session, I promise, said Jack. And then Jack took up the story. I booked a nice old country manor for a vacation in England, Jack started. One of the rooms had a quaint-looking large closet. So I open the closet and it seems very deep. I walk into it and tumble out from the back into a wooded space where I can hear someone talking above me. I look around and I can only see some tall trees. I think I know where you're going with this, I said. Did you also see a lamp post with a flame inside? Don't, said Jack. Don't spoil it for your audience. Okay, I replied. Let's hear it from you. So I peek through the trees and see a group of giraffes who are talking. They appear to be mama giraffes who are discussing how difficult it has been to get food for their kids. And they seem to be quite articulate and they are discussing evolution. One of them says, I hope my young ones have longer necks. I don't know what else we can do to help our children reach the leaves which are higher up. And then one of them sees Jack. She seems to be startled. Son of Adam, she says. And Jack thinks he has heard this phrase before and then it occurs to him. He is in Narnia. The giraffe and Jack start chatting. The giraffe continues her little tirade about the challenges that giraffes face. The food has been scarce, she says. I'm worried about my children. I hope they will be taller than other giraffes so they can reach higher leaves. This giraffe seems to understand evolution and knows that they have long necks to allow them to reach higher leaves. She says, you know, that when humans were first coming to grips with evolution, they were thinking about giraffes. They realized that the long necks we have must serve a purpose. The giraffes with longer necks were able to reach higher leaves and that allowed them to survive and reproduce better. This process was repeated over many generations and the neck got longer and longer. She also expresses frustration with the fact that there is nothing she can do to help herself or her children. You know, all we can do is wait for a mutation that makes our necks longer. Jack began to feel a little sorry for her. He wonders what he can do to help. 
Oh, son of Adam, says the mama giraffe, you have your own challenges to take care of. We do? asks Jack. How is that? Do you understand evolution? asks the giraffe. I believe I do, but what I don't understand is how you understand evolution, says Jack. Oh, my great-grandfather was at the zoo in London in the late 1860s. Evolution was all the rage in those days, and many scholars from all around England would come to see him and debate evolution. We got a very good understanding of the evolutionary process and deep knowledge about the museums of natural history around the world, said the giraffe. That is amazing, said Jack. After chatting a little longer, Jack tells the giraffe that he is from Toledo, Ohio. Oh, says the giraffe, have you ever visited the Natural History Museum of Cleveland? Jack said that he probably had when he was in school, but he doesn't quite remember it. Did you see Lucy? asks the giraffe. Jack doesn't remember seeing Lucy. The giraffe starts telling Jack about Lucy. Lucy is one of the most complete skeletons of an ancestral human species living over three million years ago ever discovered. The Cleveland Museum of Natural History had it for many years, but they returned it to Ethiopia from where it came. Now they have a life-size replica of Lucy. Lucy was walking upright, freeing up her hands and thumbs, but she had a very small brain. This is one of the pieces of evidence that ancestral humans started walking upright before human brains grew in size. It appears that freeing up your hands allowed you to make tools, which is at least one of the things that contributed to the need for a larger brain, said the giraffe. Jack is intrigued. That is very interesting. He realizes that this giraffe knows a lot more about evolution than he does. Jack asks the giraffe, You know you were saying that we humans have our own challenges. What are those? Well, says the giraffe, if you take any species other than humans, they can't really do anything very different from what their ancestors have been doing to improve their chances of survival. I'm worried about my children, but I can't really do anything about it except hope that they have mutations that cause them to have longer necks. You, on the other hand, are very different from every other species. You have hands with opposing thumbs that allow you to make tools. You can innovate to solve problems that you face. You can also communicate very effectively using language with other humans and work in teams to do things that no individual human could do. Your ancestors hunted mammoths and large elephants because you communicated and worked as a team. This gets Jack thinking. He says to the giraffe, Everything you just said seems like a great advantage that humans have. How is that a challenge? Take a moment to think about it, says the giraffe. You are living with other members of your species, other humans who can improve their chances of survival by innovation such as making new tools and forming new teams. This can put you at a relative disadvantage. It is imperative that you develop the ability to keep track of your relative standing compared to other humans so you can keep up with them. 
your life is a lot more challenging because your relative chances of survival can change because of what your fellow humans are doing to improve their own chances of survival. Ah, uh, that sounds complicated, says Jack. I don't fully understand it. Imagine living in a prehistoric hunting-gathering community, says the giraffe. It's funny you should say that, said Jack, because I just lived in one such community from 4,000 years ago. That's great, says the giraffe. Then you will understand exactly what I mean. What kind of work did you specialize in? Asked the giraffe. Well, I found I had a talent for mending and making new spears. I spent most of my time doing that. And in exchange, I got meat and food from hunters and gatherers, replied Jack. Then the giraffe started explaining things to him. You could imagine that if another person in the group starts making better spears than you, it would bother you. It would capture your attention and you would be thinking about it. You would want to make an assessment of whether these spears were actually that good. You would be paying attention to any information you got about these spears. If you found that one of the hunters really liked it, you would remember it. If you heard that another hunter thought it was useless, you would make a note of that too. You are doing all of these things automatically. Unlike any other creature on the planet, your chances of survival can change rapidly based on the innovation of your peers. Your evolutionary challenge is to pay attention to that and respond to that in a meaningful way. You have a large brain that is constantly assessing where you stand against your peers. You are also tracking your status and your capability against other people. You are also getting an idea of what other people think of you and your capabilities when making that appraisal. You are tracking the status of your group against other groups. You are also tracking who the people are who are loyal to you, who you can rely on when things don't work out for you. You also pay attention to any novelty, new things, new information. You need to look for patterns to see if anyone is plotting against you or your team. Yours is a stressful life. I don't envy it, said the giraffe. Jack's head is spinning. That is a lot to take in, he's thinking. He wishes the giraffe many mutations that enable her children to have longer necks. He is thinking deeply about the predicament of humans when he wakes up. In our session, Jack said, Every animal must compete with others within its species. For most animals, it is genetic programming that gives them the traits that allow them to compete. We get those too, but we have to be equipped with brains that allow us to respond to other humans who are constantly working to improve their capability. They can make tools, they can innovate, they can form teams that give them an advantage over other humans. We must keep track of all that and try to maximize our own chances by trying to outcompete them on innovation, tool making and teamwork. That is hard work. It certainly is, I said. That is why we have such large, energy-hungry brains. I think you should summarize this session for us today, since you got all the insights from your dreams.
From the first dream, said Jack, where I crashed the DeLorean from Back to the Future and got stuck in a community of hunter-gatherers 4,000 years ago, I got a list of the things that people want socially. We want to be accepted. We want to belong. We want to be seen as competent and respectable by our peers. We also want high status. Though we don't like it when other people do better than us, we do like it when we as a group do better than other groups. From the second dream, I realize what a challenge humans have in evolutionary terms. The fact that unlike pretty much any other living creature, we can make complex tools with our hands which have opposing thumbs, we have the ability to be creative and innovative to solve problems, and we use complex language to communicate and coordinate work with fellow humans. This creates a new evolutionary challenge. Our brains must constantly track how we are doing compared to others. We automatically pay attention when somebody does well compared to us. We track all the information that comes our way about how other people are doing compared to us. We feel good when we do well and upset when we don't do well in these comparisons. I think I will leave the learning points to you, Doc, said Jack. Sure, I said. I think it is helpful for us to know what we as humans want. Your first dream takes you through being accepted and living as a part of a completely new community in a very different age. This is helpful to keep in mind when we are interacting with other people. We can get the outcomes we want when we give people what they want. In your second dream, we saw how people are constantly paying attention to social comparisons and information about their relative competence. These comparisons seem really important to us because there was a time in our evolutionary history when our survival would depend on them. Our brains haven't had a chance to adapt to the change in our situation. In most developed parts of the world, and even in some developing parts of the world, somebody doing better than us doesn't really put us at a huge disadvantage. It doesn't impact our chances of survival in the same way as it would have done 4,000 years ago, but our brains respond as if it does. When you're feeling overwhelmed, just step back and see what your brain is doing. Observe how it is responding to minor situations as if your life depended on them. You may be able to laugh at some of them and lighten the stress a bit. In our next episode, I told Jack, we are going to be discussing communication skills and conflict resolution. I can guarantee you one thing, this is not going to be anything like what you have heard before about conflict resolution or communication skills. I appreciate the humility, Doc, said Jack. I look forward to it. I hope you will join me for the next episode. If you have questions or comments, please go to wgte.org slash brainpolitics. I am Dr. Rajiv Parinja. I am your host and producer. Our executive producer is Chris Pfeiffer. This is Brain Politics. I hope you will join me for the next episode.
WGTE. Voices around us. WGTE is supported in part by American Rescue Plan Act funds allocated by the City of Toledo and the Lucas County Commissioners and administered by the Arts Commission.